this was a really tough decision. And when they make it personal, that's when we, because we've left, all, 90% of our content is controversial. Yeah, we get and a we lot of like sexualized death threats. But, but then when yeah. that stuff comes in and they or they bring my kids in or anything like that, uh-uh, like shutting that right yeah. down. You know? It's frequently said that doctors aren't scientists and we need to stop speaking as if we were scientists. Well, my next two guests are both scientists. Please welcome Dr. Steyer and Dr. Love to the show, hosts of the Unbiased Science Podcast to debate that very point. And when I say debate, it's more like discuss because we not only discuss that, my RSV controversy, all the topics that exist in the health and wellness space surrounding natural supplements, natural cures, and is inflammation to blame for all of our problems? This is gonna be a really contentious, exciting, educational, and even collaborative conversation. So please enjoy. Let's get started with the checkup. I have two scientists in front of me. I am not a scientist, but I feel like doctors like to think of themselves as scientists. <laughs> it feels like you have a controversial stance on this, at yes. least within our community of doctors. Correct. Who wants to take first stab at proving why I'm not a scientist? Well, I think the thing is, is that some clinicians are scientists, okay. but not all clinicians are scientists. Mm -hmm. And the public just automatically assumes that all clinicians are scientists. Mm -hmm. But I mean, you could speak to this better than than we can. My, my husband's an, an ER doc, and mm -hmm. he always says he had no formal training in epidemiology and data science and how to critically appraise evidence. You don't get training in that. So yes, you have clinical expertise, but do you all know, do you? I mean, I don't know. Do you know how to really read and, and critically appraise research? I, I would like to take a step back. Okay, sorry. Let's, no, 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 this is a good place to be. But for the audience, what is your definition of what a scientist is versus a clinician? Okay, that's a very good question. <laughs> so, so I, I can jump in. I think, I think there is a difference. So I think clinicians can often be called like applied scientists, right? So you're mm -hmm. taking scientific information, mm -hmm. things that have been designed, developed, evaluated by trained scientists, basic scientists, you could call them, and are using it to apply to treatment of a single individual. Whereas scientists, by and large, are looking at population level information. Right. They're designing studies in order to evaluate or investigate a given phenomenon or an observation. And then they're evaluating the data that they collect to make generalizations or interpretations of the body at large. And that could be an entire human population. It could be a population of cells in a Petri dish. Mm -hmm. It could be a population of animals. Um, but it's it's very different because you're making these broad um, conclusions based on a comprehensive body of evidence as opposed to tailoring the knowledge that's been created by scientists in order to apply it to a single individual, if that makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. Now, why is it on a practical level an issue when a doctor starts treating themselves as a scientist when they don't have the background knowledge to do so? Well, I think the biggest thing comes down to the training in study design and interpretation of the data. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times clinicians are going to be provided clinical recommendations, right, from a variety of credentialed organizations that provide clinical guidance, right? Like you're you're not expected to pull out treatment plans, you know, out of a hat of as course. it were, right? There are a lot of standard procedures, 
Not to say that there aren't exceptions, right? Certain cases, and that's why, you know, you collaborate and have differential diagnoses and try and, you know, investigate the problem. But there's not a lot of formal um, training with regard to, okay, is the study designed in a way that will appropriately evaluate the question at hand? Are we actually collecting the data that need to be collected? Are there variables that might skew these data that we're not accounting for? Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's totally fine because people can't be trained in everything, course, right? There yeah. are reasons that there are specific fields of expertise. And that's why scientists and clinicians really need to work together to do that. Yes. Because just like <laughs> just like clinicians, we're not going to go treat people. Right. We're not going to go make treatment recommendations. We're going to say, okay, well, the data support this as a treatment for X, Y, and Z, or the data do not support, you know, the evidence for the treatment of X, Y, or Z. The way that I'll put this on a practical perspective is if I have a patient in front of me and I'm a clinician, I'm a doctor, I am going to diagnose the patient based on my evaluation of what's going on, which includes a history, a physical, potentially some tests. And then my treatment plan will come from the evidence that was collected by scientists, Mm -hmm. that was evaluated by scientists. And therefore, these clinical guidelines that were sort of laid out for me, I go off of those. Yeah. And I feel like good quality clinicians, which is myself, Mm -hmm. would go, not saying that I'm a good quality physician, but meaning the clinician is myself, will base their decisions more so off good evidence-based data as opposed to just solely their experience. Exactly, right. And we just want to say, like, we are pro-clinician. Like, I think a lot of times we're pitted against clinicians, and that's why I'm so happy that we're tackling this. Mm -hmm. Because it's like people assume that there's a hierarchy and that clinicians are at the top and we're just somewhere in the middle. Right. But that's not the case. You guys are amazing. You're experts in treatment and, you know, diagnosis and treatment and all that. But you're not necessarily trained in the scientific process. Mm -hmm. And so, like Andrea was saying, you know, people can put anything they want like you could publish anything, but we've been trained to understand the quality of the evidence. Mm-hmm. And that's like the I, that's how we approach every, all the information that we consume is, okay, what are the threats to the validity and the reliability of this? Is this generalizable? Or is this just an anecdote? Is this an outlier? What's the body of mm-hmm. evidence? What's the scientific consensus? Of and yeah. that's where I think the difference lies. Yeah. But I do want to also make the point, and I know, you know, Ethan and I even spoke about this. So Ethan's her husband. husband. Yep. Yeah. Shout out to ER Ethan. doctor. Yes. Dr. Ethan Shapin. Um, <laughs> so, you know, he has come up against this as a younger clinician where some of the older, more entrenched clinicians are very, um, you know, intractable in this expertise-based or experience-based um, practice as opposed to an evidence-based practice and right. younger clinicians, more, you know, newer generations of clinicians are really looking more to the science, which is great to see because that's how it should be working together. Yeah. Right. Um, but we saw a lot of this during COVID and, mm-hmm. and during a lot of other medical issues, but you know, a lot of people, you can publish an opinion piece in, in, you know, prestigious journals and the general public doesn't know, how to discern, you know, this is an opinion piece with no data to support it, and it happens to be in a journal name I recognize, versus a very well-designed study with an appropriate number of sample subjects, you know, appropriate number of controls, you know, whatever the case happens to be, and and they're really unable to discern, like, well, why is this one credible and this one isn't when they're in the same journal? Absolutely. I don't think it's one or the other, because when I get general guidelines, population-based guidelines on what I should do for a given patient. 
I have to remember that that is not given to that patient. Yes. Because if that was the case, AI would just diagnose and treat everybody. Right. right. But the reality is medicine is the science and art. That's what I think differentiates a clinician. They have to incorporate that art. Yes. yes. Where in the lab, if you're doing art stuff, maybe that's a problem actually. <laughs> so uh, I think the human is part of the art form. Yeah. So while I, I, I may know, I'll just finish the point. <laughs> I, I'll, um, I may know that this is what's recommended for patient A, right. but I know patient A has a bias or they've experienced something with this negatively and I know they won't buy into this yet and I have to take an extra visit for this. I, I can adapt the research that you've provided me into an individual. Exactly, and I think that really comes to the crux of all like science and health in general is that it's multifactorial. Yeah. Yes. and too often people get hung up on this like singular antidote and not not realizing that there's a lot of other factors in play mm -hmm. and what works for a single individual does not necessarily mean that that is, you know, the de facto data-driven yep. evidence. Right. And I've seen a lot of clinicians get frustrated mm -hmm. with scientists and these guidelines because it's like, I'm the clinician, I'm sitting in front of the patient, I know their history, you know, like the nuance of their, of their clinical background or whatever. Like, why should I follow a guideline? I'm the clinician. And so, so working in data science, like you mentioned AI and machine learning, and there's all these amazing things that I think are going to come out in the next few years where we could figure out, okay, this patient has a probability of, you know, of success or of being discharged if we follow XYZ protocol. But we always have to work in conjunction with the with the clinician. I don't think personally, and I know, Andrea, I don't speak for you, but I think you agree, that should never supersede your clinical judgment. But we're a team. Yeah. And I think like that thinking needs to change. Like we're often pitted against clinicians, yeah. but we are a team. No, yeah. the <laughs> yes. team aspect is absolutely right. The multifactorial thing yeah. is right because the multifactorial is probably the answer for all of these yes. things that we're going to be discussing Everything, today. Right? Nuance, uh, as Jonathan Haidt said, actually on my channel, is a superpower that mm -hmm. we we need to uh, and is lacking in, many. in most people. Yes. I will say to play a little devil's advocate. Older f clinicians will oftentimes rely too heavily on anecdote in their experience Absolutely. and therefore less so on evidence-based medicine. I have seen that pattern. At the same time, I have seen a new pattern in my younger residents that I'm training that are very focused on the evidence-based information and guidance, so much so that they forget that there's a human sitting in front mm. of them. Uh, yeah, that's... So that's where the like boots on the ground thing yeah. and why I think collaboration between scientists and clinicians needs to happen more often yep. when we're making clinical guidelines, when we're making legal decisions yes. on what is covered in insurance plans and <laughs> oh, pharmaceutical yeah. Oh, yeah. plans and all that. So yeah. I feel like being the clinician, yeah. the thing that I'm seeing on my side is both ends of the spectrum and the pendulum constantly swinging one yeah, way or right, another right. and constantly trying to bring it into homeostasis and back into the middle somehow. Absolutely. Totally yeah, agree. no, I totally agree. I mean, you know, you could certainly see you know, someone who's so fixated on what do the data say and they forget, you know, a very potentially critically important key detail of patient history, right? Yeah. And that could lead them to a misdiagnosis. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, in medicine, you need both of those things. Yes, yeah. absolutely. I, I think that's cool. And to answer the question that we started with, I think there's a wide spectrum of how doctors learn research and science mm -hmm. in the first two years of medical training. Right. Some get a heavy lecture on it, some get a very glossed over sort of summary of it. Mm -hmm. But then in residency training is where I see either a strong emphasis from the program where they're learning 
and they have journal club and they mm -hmm. have times where they're dissecting weaknesses of articles and research that has been put out. And there's a, such a wide variability. Right. So I think it's difficult to pan down and say, all doctors are not good at research or, mm -hmm. or they are. Mm -hmm. And when we do say doctors aren't scientists, the problem that comes up is then the skeptics of medicine come in and use that as an entryway mm -hmm. and say, your doctor doesn't know what they're talking about. I know the science. Uh -huh. And most people don't have the time and the energy and the dense informational background to know the difference, as you said, between two different opinion articles yeah. or research articles. And they're left confused. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think, I mean, you know, to play devil's advocate on the other side, you know, you obviously get the people who say, I know the science when they, in fact, do not know the science. <laughs> yes. um, and that can be true even for scientists, right? Yeah. There are scientists that, you know, we've seen it a lot in the Twitterverse where they are going outside of their field of expertise yeah. and they're misinterpreting the conclusion of a study because it's not in their scope of knowledge. And that's true for scientists, clinicians, general public, I mean, everywhere in between. So I think, you know, that's why there has to be collaboration and that's why there has to be discussion and, you know, constant evaluation of rigor of data that's emerging. Agreed. And this brings us nicely to our point of how we met. <laughs> Do you remember how uh, yes, we came to? Uh, I remember. So <laughs> okay. did I slide Do into DMs? No, what did no, I do? Dr. Mike. I'm yes, married. there was a yeah, DM. Yeah, kind of. I think it was me. I think it was me that slid <laughs> really? into the DMs. Okay. So he had, you were on, you were a guest or you had a guest on yes. your show and you were talking about the RSV surge yes. and you were discussing how there was an increased proportion of hospitalizations or severe illness because there was this- Timing know, shift. Timing yeah. shift, exactly. What we can call the the exposure, um, you know, gap, exposure gap, not immunity gap, everyone. Um, we've <laughs> oh, covered boy. that already. But um, the fact that the first, the first time a child gets RSV is oft, most often the most severe time. Right. And- you got a lot of flack from yeah. people about from, that. Actually, from clinicians. immunologists. No, not from clinicians. Oh, from scientists. From scientists. Whoa. So it was actually heavy from the science community. Very interesting. And they were using the same talking points that you're saying right now, which is interesting and why I really want to discuss this. Okay. Because they were saying he clearly doesn't understand he's a clinician, not a scientist. And I remember I <laughs> slid into his DMs and I said- <laughs> Before the drama Before started. the drama. And I yeah. was like, I appreciate your take on this. Um, and I sent him our video about, you know- Debunking the- Yeah, about okay. why there are- Immunity death. Yeah, why is there why there's such a surge of respiratory viruses this season and a mm. lot, you know, the multifactorial aspect of it, right? Absolutely. We have, you know, the, the COVID burnout, people are going back to pre-pandemic behaviors. You have routine circulation of a lot of respiratory viruses. Right. Um, and, and, and I think, you know, it was just like, it was like a, it was like a commiseration sort of thing initially. What was frustrating about it was that I said in opening my statement that this is one of the leading theories, right? essentially saying that this is multifactorial. Yeah. Right. So. But there's no nuance. No, no, so. no. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I, and then I asked you even after the, the critique started, do you think I said something wrong that I need to issue a correction? Right. And because I, I want to, as a clinician, put out accurate right. scientific so, right. so you're absolutely correct. Typically, a lot of these child, I don't wanna say childhood illness, because of course adults can get RSV course, as yeah. well, but these illnesses that are typically more severe in childhood, influenza, RSV, otitis media, I mean, a lot of these things, right? Yep. Your first interaction with that pathogen is 
most often, and I don't want to say always because yeah, of course. it's multifactorial. It's Things yes, change throughout yeah. the course of someone's life. Yeah. But very often, in fact, is, most often, RSV is fine. Kids do fine with yes, that. Right. So that's what reassurance yes. for parents. Correct. Because as a clinician, I'm also worried about the yes, parent yes. Right. being so worried that if they for the most part, RSV. yeah, it's generally mild. Um, but your first interaction, your first encounter with that virus, typically leads to the most severe illness presentation. And so, if there are kids, not that their immune systems are compromised from not being exposed to it, but it's just the first time they've seen it. Yeah. Um, it will often be more severe than the next time they see it. Now, that's because we don't develop full immunity, long-term immunity to RSV, and that's why you can get infected repeatedly. Yep. However, you have a little bit, there's a lot of different components of the immune system, right? You of have course. the innate immune system, which doesn't have any memory, and it's always there to patrol, but then you have different arms of memory immunity, and some of those taper off more quickly and some do not. And so you can still get sick, but it's typically less severe in future encounters. Mm -hmm. But but nothing of what you said was incorrect. There's a lot of factors at play this year. Yeah, the immunologists were pointing out that they're saying the, the size of the airways changing as the child gets older is the reason for the second illness being less bad. And that's true. Yeah. We don't disagree. There's it's one lot, of the reasons. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Also, yeah. also <laughs> general development of the immune system occurs as people of age. Course. Right. So, you know, and that, and that also goes the other direction, right? You have a peak and then you have a valley when you have immune senescence. So then older people, their immune system is less Waning, responsive yeah. mm -hmm. and they now have similar risk factors as you would as a younger person. Can I just say, I think it was awesome how you went about, like you reached out and you really wanted input and you were open to, you know, is any, are there any inaccuracies? And I feel like what's so interesting about what we're doing, it's so public. Yeah. And when these scientists or clinicians, whatever, it's like clinician on scientist violence, yeah. like they do it so publicly. <laughs> yeah. And then think about what the public yes. is seeing. Exactly, that's it's, my concern. Right? About it. Yeah. right. It, it like totally discredits everything that we're doing. It's like a journal club or a peer review process, but like in front of an audience eating popcorn. Yeah. Like, like scientific discourse is normal. It's encouraged. It's the beauty of science, right? But now that it's all playing out in the public eye, they are they're like, oh look, this is wrong. They can't they can't get it together. There there's such disagreement, and it I just feel like it erodes it er public yeah. trust yeah. in science and medicine. And also like when you're a professional in the field, clinician, scientist, whatever, when you're on social media. What is your purpose? You have to think about what is your purpose? Are you just trying to have a pissing match with another person in the field to make yourself feel better or feel smarter? Or are you trying to do something for yeah. the general good of society, yeah. right? If it's the latter, then what is your point of calling someone out publicly? If you have a critique about what they're saying, message them privately. You don't need to go and dogpile them to make yourself feel better. That's right. completely unproductive. And as Jess said, erodes public trust in both science and medicine. Yeah. And I think the goal is evidence-based medicine and getting people to buy in. You should avoid that at all yes. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. We have to get our act together. Honestly, like I feel like COVID really lit a fire and there are so many of us out there who are now inside common in the public eye. Mm -hmm. But like, I don't know, I, there's not a whole lot of kumbaya behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. At least it hasn't been for us. I don't know if it, well, I know it hasn't necessarily well, I'm curious, always been the case. Tell me about a time where that's happened. Well, <laughs> so, so I recently, so we've gotten a lot of messages from people who have seen people, and we're not super active on Twitter, I'll just kind of preface that. We do most of our work on Instagram and we do have the weekly podcast. 
Um, but, you know, every now and then, and, and Jess is kind of forcing us into the reels world and TikTok. Sorry. And- <laughs> I mean, that's where the world is going. Right? Yeah. And TikTok. Jess is just I facilitating. Yeah, I don't. I want to hide my face. I'm a scientist. I'm going to go hide in the lab with my coat and my sweatpants. <laughs> you just and- also happen to be beautiful. And I think it would be nice if, to be got your face on social media. But okay, go on. But anyway, so, so we have gotten a lot of messages from people who follow the podcast page. Because, again, our page is really geared towards providing content content for the general public. It's not really designed for complex scientific discourse like let's talk about toll like receptor signaling and how it activates interferon regulatory factors. Yeah, I, I don't, don't know, know what, what that you means. Just said. That's not <laughs> that's, that's but that, that's, I am not I re- regret saying I was a scientist at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> but that's but you know so that's like the Twitter verse of like the scientist. Right? I raise you a TNF alpha. <laughs> Follow some interfering gamma. Um, so, anyways, you know we got a lot of a lot of messages from people who were so concerned with a lot of these um, articles coming out about post COVID and long COVID and how it was leading to immunodeficiency. What and there and and people are liking it likening it to HIV and acquired immunodeficiency syndrome. And I was like, I just wanted to alleviate people's concerns that there's no body of evidence to support primary immunodeficiency after COVID. And in fact, even these temporary changes in immune cell populations are totally normal. All right, well, it, I got to set this up because this okay, what you're okay. saying is really important. Okay. Okay. And if we don't set it up, this might go over people's okay. heads because I feel it going over my head and yet I already know what you're saying. Okay. There is a concern. Yes. Uh, this is the problem. We're going to set the table. Mm-hmm. The problem is people are worried that after COVID, their immune systems are going to be weakened. Correct. They're, the theory is potentially kids are having worsening RSV spikes because they've been sick with COVID. Right. Right. So what has the evidence shown us on a practical level from experiencing COVID to what happens to our immune systems after? So- there's a lot of different things that happen, and that's the that's the challenge, right? Yeah. So there are there are some data that suggests that some of the persistent symptoms of what we're calling long COVID, which yeah. is the post acute sequelae of the infection, can be due to overactive or hyperactive immune responses, meaning you have persistent populations of T cells inflammatory populations of T cells that are leading to inflammation that is then leading to some of these symptoms that people are reporting. Mm-hmm. There's also some data that suggests okay, that- Okay, so some data says there's inflammation yep. happening after you're sick with COVID. Right. And in, that in might your lead to- body, And yeah. you might have some symptoms as Correct. a result. And then there's some data- that, There's some data that also suggests that some people memory immune system is less responsive, mm-hmm. which is one of- some of the theory behind why people are getting sick more frequently with other respiratory mm-hmm. viruses that are always circulating. Mm-hmm. And then there's some data that suggests that there are no long-term changes or persistent changes for other people. And that is kind of what you would expect after a viral infection. There are going to be some populations that have one response, some populations that have the other extreme, and then some in the middle, right? Okay. It's a bell curve. And so unfortunately, a lot of media outlets and professionals on Twitter have kind of leaned into one of those directions and really harping on this, like long COVID is destroying your immune system and leading to immunodeficiency and it's suppressing your immune responses. On par with HIV. Correct. Really On par with fear. HIV. Yeah. Like re- right. people, a lot of fear mongering. Yes. A lot of fear mongering. And there are very vocal people on Twitter who are doing this. And okay. so we wanted to simply alleviate the concerns that there are no data to suggest that It's COVID, that bad. Right. That it's that bad. That there may be temporary changes to your immune system, but- that's 
that makes sense, right? Your yeah. immune system's fighting a virus, so it's gonna take some damage sure. and it's gonna take a little bit of time to recover, as you would expect. But people are not getting um, infections, opportunistic infections that you would expect if your memory immune system was basically destroyed. Got it. So, so it's not as bad as people are making exactly it seem on that lane. Correct. What's the other lane that some people are going into? Well, so what happened there was that I got called out for basically ignoring all of the data that are suggesting that there is temporary perturbations when that was not what I was saying at all. And mm -hmm. I actually noted that there were temporary perturbations. Mm -hmm. So the fear mongering camp of COVID is destroying everybody's immune systems and you're going to be sick forever basically dogpiled me and... They thought we were downplaying long COVID. Yeah, that okay. was the whole thing. Okay. Like, why are you downplaying this? Like, this is feeding into this idea that COVID is over. We shouldn't be concerned with when it anymore. When we have and never done that. And yeah. and this is the, the problem with social media. You have a very limited amount of time, right? Like, we had a, a 60 second, 90 second reel. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And Andrea was responding to that fear, to the fear mongering headlines. Like, oh my goodness, you know, 50% of people are getting long COVID. It's like HIV. Our immune systems will never be the same. And they came after her. And really, you're not even, I mean, it it was, it was vicious. People really going after her specifically. There are people who have pages dedicated to trying to take us down and they were ripping sure into credential. I mean, yeah. I'm sure you've experienced sure. the same. And again, I mean, it's sort of interesting, like the medium as message, like the, the medium of social media is interfering with our ability. Like if you if you want a thesis on like what and Andrea, obviously yeah, like you I'll, could talk I'll for hours about this. 150 page thesis right? on, but yeah. that's not productive. Right. You right. know what you're experiencing right now? And I'm only smiling because you're experiencing what clinicians experience. Oh. <laughs> you're trying to take a lot of complex data. Yes. And you're trying to simplify yeah. it into a visit. Yeah. But, but the challenge is, <laughs> but the people that Welcome. are attacking, <laughs> the people that actually were doing the attacking were clinicians. Mm. Mm. Yeah, there was a very angry dermatologist. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, I I'll tell you why I actually agree with you on, on your stance. Um, why I'm against fear mongering specifically and not to downplay long COVID or the temporary changes that we see in the immune system's effectiveness post COVID. Because the human mind is so powerful and it really shouldn't be mind and body, it should be mind body, that if I plant the seed in either one patient or in many patients by talking on social media, that their immune system is weakened, their immune system gets weakened. That's mm -hmm. actually true. Yes. yes, I agree with you. And yeah. okay, so this, so this is that wild. No, wild. but yeah. but it's but it's one hundred percent true because yeah. we know again multifactorial. Um, <laughs> Word of the day: stress <laughs> hormones, cortisol. There's a whole a whole lot of pathways that get activated. Yeah, but your endocrine system feeds into your immune system. Your immune system is involved in every bodily system. Yep. In, you know that that exists. Yep. So everything there's interplay, and and this is actually a struggle I'm having with the long COVID because there is no clinical diagnostic criteria. There is a giant encyclopedia long list of symptoms that are associated with long COVID, mm. many of which can be associated with the fact that we've all been living in a pandemic yeah. that right. is in traumatic. Absolutely. And people have PTSD and people have depression because they've been locked in their home. Is that actually a consequence of a viral infection? You can't say that because right. there's no way to parse that out. And yeah. so all of these things are getting lumped into the umbrella of long COVID. And that is, I think, in some ways inflating the numbers of people that are reporting 
saying that they have long COVID. Because if you look at the actual biology of this virus, yes, it can do some damage for sure. We have never downplayed that. We actually have a lot of posts on long COVID and, and COVID in general and highly encourage people to get vaccinated and take mitigation measures. But there is no robust body of data that suggests that physiologically plausible that, you know, all of these, all things. Of these right. things are going to be associated with all of these people who had COVID. And it's like correlation doesn't equal causation, we always say. Just because it happens after you had COVID, it doesn't mean it's because of COVID or it's long COVID. And anytime we try to articulate that, people come for us because yeah. they feel like we're downplaying. I feel like in medicine, what ends up happening is you have arguments over nomenclature. Like what word did you choose <laughs> yes. to describe this yes. given? When in reality, we're talking about the same thing. Yes. We, are on the same team. Yeah. Yes. You might think this is 5%, I might think it's seven, but the difference doesn't matter. And I think what is created is like a very tribalistic situation yes. where there are ulterior motives to yes. argue about the five to 7% difference. And then the person that suffers in all of this is not the person like you getting attacked or the person doing the attacking, but the viewer, the, yes. the, the average yes. person who's trying right. to figure out what the heck is going so, on. So we, so out of the interest of that, we actually ended up taking down that particular post because- Oh, I feel bad that you guys did that. I it, mean- well, they, Honestly, the only reason we did it- and They I'm were just doxing They me. were really yeah. doxing her. Oh. They, were, it, um, they were coming but, for her hard. Well, I mean, but then now you've empowered them to say, if they dox you hard enough, you can do it again. Well, no, but but the reason we took it down is because we want to do a more comprehensive summary Well, you it. could have done that as well and left uh, that one up. No, I, I, know, had, this was, I haven't this was had the tough, time. This it's was tough. a really tough decision. And when they make it personal, that's when we, because we've left- Oh, 90% of our content is controversial. Yeah, we get and a we lot of like sexualized death threats. But, but then when that stuff comes in and they or if they bring my kids in or anything like that, uh-uh, like shutting that right yeah. down, you know? But but normally like we have no problem arguing, you know, <laughs> right. publicly or not. But but it was it was more because the whole thread just completely lost track of like the purpose of it. It was not for some clinicians to get into a pissing match. It was, sure. we were trying to alleviate a very specific concern that- you know, people are afraid now, right? Because the public health emergency, it's ending. Lifted, right? Nobody's wearing masks. Mm -hmm. Only 15% of people have gotten the bivalent booster. So there are people that have a lot of health anxiety yeah. and they're afraid to leave their house. And so yeah. we're literally trying to alleviate and be like, it's okay. Yeah. yeah. It. I don't want to say it's inevitable, but right now with, you know, XBB 1.5, like it's going to spread pretty quickly. But, but we don't want people to have this overwhelming paralytic fear Fatalist, that if they get right. COVID, they're never going to be the same. Not to say that there's not bad outcomes, but vaccination, booster, all of those things can improve, yeah. you know, improve your, your outcome or reduce the risk of severe outcomes. Can I say one other thing? Please? I feel like what, what we try, how we try to set ourselves apart from some other scientists, icon pages is that we are obviously, yes, we're scientists first, but we're also practical and it's like real life. Like, you know, like people really came for us when we, had, when we said like, we're not necessarily masking all the time. Like this is when there was a real lull. It's like real, real life. Like I have young kids, like we, we are, we're slowly returning to normalcy, going to restaurants. And a lot of scientists and people in the SciComm community were like, how irresponsible right. of you. And it's like, we're being practical. But what's interesting is there's a level of hypocrisy there um, from people that are pretending like there's perfect levels of protection that exist. Yes, right. And that you'll even see Dr. Fauci, who's on, who's on my channel a couple of times, oh. we're talking about <laughs> like, 
appropriate levels of risk for you might not yes, be what's correct. an appropriate level of risk what for we, you. Yes, and that's what, we, yeah. that's what we try and talk about a lot is that, you know, if I lived with a family member that was really high risk, yes. I would be doing Changing things your differently. But but there's some people where it's an all or none. And and initially early in the pandemic when we didn't know anything about this virus, like yeah, of course. I was months, yeah. very cautious. I didn't leave my house too. For yeah. the I, my, months, yeah. I stopped hosting group runs outside because we didn't yet know yeah. how quickly this could spread even yeah. outdoors. My husband right. lived in, a, like again, he's an ER doc. He lived, we got an Airbnb for him. He showered outside. Like he was literally like writing his will. Yeah. Like we thought it was like end of days. No yeah. one knew what was going on yeah. well then, that's what the problem is they start kidnapping the information from what you said you know uh, when the pandemic yes. first started yes to what's going on now you lied and, yeah you lied right but it's no no, no. science has evolved it's not that's even, what science like is. our knowledge evolved yes. science evolved all those things changed data yes. has emerged yes. yeah, yeah outside safety but, like but what's a lot interesting of things exactly. is that there are some psychom pages who are still like very militant about a lot of things, like the mask wearing yes. and, and almost shaming. Like, how dare you go to the supermarket? Let's without talk a about mask. the shaming because I think this is smart. Because the, again, well, let's go back to the goal. If this person's goal, from a psychological perspective, is to increase masking, and throughout the years of practicing medicine, we know shaming does not work. No. We saw it with the HIV pandemic. We see it with vaccine hesitancy. You shame, you break lines of communication, you don't help anyone. Yep. Right. So what are your theories as to why people are shaming? If there are evidence-based people who know shaming doesn't work. I mean, you know- Is it's, it emotional? I, it's, yes. I, yes, very emotional. I was gonna say it's emotional. You know, they, they've, kind of, they've kind of dug their heels in about this given topic. And I think it, I think it's a gap in effective communication skills. They don't know another way to communicate that someone should be wearing a mask aside from this kind of shame rhetoric. Mm -hmm. I also feel like we're not academics. I worked briefly in clinical academia, but we're not academics. And yeah. I feel like the and academic approach to the non-academic approach is very different. Like there's a lot of pride, a lot of like ivory tower type approach. And I feel like they take a stance and they just double down, you know, like I, and I, but I think, so I would say, yes, I think it's very emotional, a lot of pride. They want to be an expert, you know, and for whatever reason, the black and white, very bold statements those are more impactful. Those are the things that get shared and res for whatever reason. And it's so frustrating for us because we always say science is all about the gray and there's nuance. And like now I do mask if I'm going to a like a, you know, I don't know, a, a supermarket or whatever. And it's because there was an uptick in cases like things change. Like I don't see the reason that we need to double down on a particular stance. It's yeah. like, why can't we evolve? Why can't we acknowledge that there's nuance and gray? So I don't know if I'm answering your yeah, question. No, no I mean, I have a, I have a a different theory. I oh, think, I want to hear. Yeah, yeah. sorry, <laughs> but 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 I would. I mean, I think it's also. I think it's definitely. There's there's definitely a little bit of that ivory tower. Yes, because because again, I did work in academic research, and and now I'm not. Now I'm in biotech. That's my full time job. But but now I'm also involved in you know this Lyme disease foundation, and you know again the goal of that is to provide you know evidence to the masses as well and dispel misinformation. And I think you know academics who live in that academic bubble, they don't. They don't realize that the rest of the world, there's a gap, right? Mm -hmm. There's a gap in scientific literacy. There's a gap in understanding the granularity of things. Trust. Yes. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'll tell you what I think is causing it. Algorithms. Mm. Oh, yeah. I could agree with and that too. I'm, I mean it not like this is an evil AI thing coming to get us. I think 
clinicians, scientists, whoever these people are that are very heels dug in yes. one way or the highway have realized that if you take the stronger stance, mm -hmm. the algorithm then will have a higher chance of recommending your content. Totally agree. Therefore, you, this is the point where I think they make the mistake. Therefore, they think they're being more effective yep, because right. they're saying, look, this, when I'm very heels dug in, I get more views. That means I'm being a better clinician, doctor, right. whatever. But the reality is the type of viewer you're getting there yes. is someone who just wants to argue rather than the person's mind, you actually need to change. Right. You're Couldn't becoming the clickbait. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And we always say like, just beware of any extreme statement. Like, yeah. but you're right. Like the statements like, this is gonna kill you or this is gonna cure yeah. you. Like those <laughs> are what people wanna hear. It's like, oh my goodness, here's the answer. And it's boring when we say, well, <laughs> the dose makes the books then. <laughs> you know, like there's new, like there's sort of not, not exactly like sometimes, that you know, whatever. You know, you know what course, I'm getting yeah. at. And I feel like sometimes we get sucked into like, we'll uh, like some of our posts and I guess I'm being a little self-critical here, like they, I guess people now, our followers who who like our nuance are like, oh no, this is a little bit reductionist. Like you came down too hard on this and there's nuance, there's middle ground. And you're but, right. Yeah. But I would argue that okay. those posts that we do, it's because we're trying to reach other audiences. Yes. And it's a topic that we've already done a two hour podcast on, that we've already done, you True. know, 10 a 10 slide carousel post on and sometimes you need to draw in but it's never a single format no, or a single type for of sure. medium. But to your point, like we're not doing this like just for fun. Like this, what we're doing on SciComm takes a ton of time and energy and effort. And the reason we're doing it is to reach a large audience you, and you have an impact. You don't have to tell me. Yeah, well, absolutely. <laughs> listen to that. We gotta take notes <laughs> no, from you. No, that's, that's why, that's why I do it But that's why we're well. doing it. Yeah. it, it the way that I like to think about it, because everything is reductionist to me because I'm not very smart. So I have to make everything very simple. Okay. So when you are in first grade, I don't know when this is actually happening, the learning, you tell kids you can't subtract five from two because they're not ready for negatives yet. Right. right. And then you have a calculus professor go into this teacher and say, you're an idiot. Of course you can. <laughs> and it's like, well, yeah, but they're like five. But you're not yes. there yet. Yeah, yes. we're not there yet. Yes. Not there yet. So when you're making a piece of content and you're saying the end of the world is not here because COVID is happening. Right. And the, the, the researcher that's the calculus scientist in this example goes and starts yelling at you. You're like, dude, I know, but yes. like, I'm trying right. to get this You have to think about your audience. And match yes. the level of understanding. To, yes. Exactly. And that's, and that's that is, I think, the challenge with the academics because they're teaching in, and communicating they're in with an other academic yes. bubble. Yes, they don't necessarily frame things in a way that's going to resonate yeah. with the public that's not at that level. Well, and also, I don't know if this is getting off topic, but like the different platforms of social media, it's like they're totally different. So we're big on Instagram, yeah. which is you have an infographic, you have 10 slides and then a caption. On Facebook, it's all, you know, what seems to do more better text is more yeah. text heavy. If you're on TikTok, it's a video. What was my point of this? Twitter? Um, Twitter? I don't know. That some of them are different in yeah, terms of effectiveness like, or anger. Well, and so what Andrea was getting at, like on Twitter, a lot of academics, like really they get into the details and it's like academics talking to academics. On Instagram, yeah. we're using infographics to-, to We're like, not trying to talk to other academics. For the general public. Yeah. And then when we like cross post, that's when we get- yeah, into trouble. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Sorry, that was we don't point. We don't spend a lot of time on Twitter, <laughs> but like I'll go on Twitter and it's like- you know, very reputable immunologists who are literally dissecting a paper of and going course. through all the different cellular right. pathways and the inflammatory cytokines and the different populations right. of T cells. And it's like, that's cool. But 
again, what's your goal? Should that be in a, a, a med sci room on Twitter? Like, does that, should that be in the main feed? Like, is that adding to confusion to the general public? Right, like, right. I think it is. Mm -hmm. Because I think what our role should be as scientists and clinicians is communicating to the audience that needs to hear it, you yes. know? We go to conferences around, you know, throughout the year where we can get into the nitty gritty, the granularity, the presentations, every single cellular process that's happening. We don't necessarily need Twitter as a forum for that as well, you know. Right. And we're focused on the takeaways, like yeah. what's going to have the most relevance for like, for, you know, for the public. Um, you, you know, this is not a we're not speaking to peers necessarily. Right. right? And we always say, like, I'm not an I call an architect if I want to build something like where I'm not saying I'm better than anyone because I have a doctorate, right? But we have very specialized expertise. We went to school, we trained for a freaking decade. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like we can't communicate all of the detail in all of our posts. So our goal is to distill it. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. No, there's, <laughs> there's never been a theory or concept presented at a medical symposium that's not met with some level of debate. Yeah, right. But if course. that level of debate happened in the in public, public every time, uh, it would make people very confused and that's what's playing out and on And nobody media. would trust science or yeah, medicine as a exactly. result. And and we're seeing that erosion in, in a very concerning rate right now, I think. Which is why I am trying to prep the audience and educate the audience that this level of discourse is to be expected. Mm -hmm. That's my new thing uh, yes. on the thing yeah. on, on the on the channel is to get people to say, okay, here's what I'm saying, and expect a level of pushback that not everyone will agree with what I'm saying, and here are the reasons for why. To hopefully the same way that if you're making a marketing campaign, you're telling the brand, hey, I will do this. 90% of people will love my post, but then 10% of people right. will absolutely hate it. You're prepping them for the potential negative feedback. Yep. Same Smart. thing for the audience mm -hmm. when it comes to medical knowledge. And I've seen this play out on Twitter with um, some infectious disease docs that I'm friendly with uh, up north in Canada, and they're getting absolutely destroyed for things that they've said in the news mm -hmm. unfairly when they are presenting a very balanced, nuanced approach, and it's not one way or the highway, exactly what right. we've been talking about. Let's move off actually <laughs> the pandemic, because I think it's, uh, um, it, people are probably- yes, they're tired Pandemic of, of tired. <laughs> there are three subjects that you guys wanted to discuss today that you're feeling is very prevalent mm -hmm. in science communication, maybe in the health wellness woo-woo space. Dare yeah. I say? Yeah. What uh? What's one of those topics? So I, I think <laughs> I think the first and actually you know this really kind of goes back to a lot of what we've been discussing, but it's the concept that you know people will co-opt a legitimate scientific term, something that's happening on a cellular level or an organism level, and they co-opt it to explain away a whole slew of ailments. And you know one of the the terms of the day is inflammation, right? So inflammation is a normal process of the body, it needs to happen for many life, reasons yeah. for life. Yeah. It's balanced by the anti-inflammatory responses, but you find even scientists, even clinicians, definitely the general public, definitely like the wellness influencers use it as a way to explain or create in some ways new medical issues, right? Mm -hmm. So, oh, you have GI issues, it's inflammation. Oh, you have brain fog, oh, it's inflammation. Oh, you have this, oh, it's inflammation. Like, it's not, again, nuance, multifactorial. If you didn't have inflammation in your body, certain cellular processes would not exist. Every time you literally consume something, you generate inflammation because you're you're breaking down a large molecule into smaller molecules. That's a catabolic Are you process. launching a PR campaign for inflammation right now? <laughs> Yeah, do it. You're like, every inflammation time is not always bad. 
no, well, is no, that true? It's true. It's, it's true. true. It's so you're saying true. people have villainized inflammation yes. to make it like a buzzword for every yes. Correct. Correct. And while it's true, inflammation occurs in a lot of those issues. It's always it also, balanced. Yeah, it also occurs in right. other things that are very good. Yeah, yeah, and also like the most inflammatory thing that you could do as a as a person is exercise. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So you or know, or get an infection and need inflammation. Right, right. You right. Need inflammation right. to counteract. Yeah. So you know, it's very frustrating as an immunologist because you know that you know a lot of the other buzzwords that come along with it, like autophagy and free radical. Like these yeah. are all like words that have meaning in science, but they're sexy but, words. Yeah, mm-hmm. but don't have meaning when they're being applied in like the health and wellness space, and it's leading to a lot of um, like cropping up of faux medical diagnosis, a mm. lot of pseudoscience. Um, and of course it's preying Narrow into these something people. Down. Give me some pseudoscience diagnoses. Well, so like oh the God. leaky gut syndrome. Okay. That's one that is Adrenal often- what, is, what do people say about leaky gut? Let's define it for the so audience. So people are claiming that leaky gut syndrome is an issue where your intestinal cells become permeable so that food bits and toxins are leaking out from your GI tract into your bloodstream and are leading to inflammation. And that's why you have all these symptoms, fatigue, lethargy, brain fog, headache, um, bloating, diarrhea, whatever, like every symptom under the sun. So intestinal permeability is a scientific term because your cells are not cemented to each other. Mm -hmm. They have little junctions, little proteins that are like little gaps. And that actually allows the transport of molecules that you need but it's not allowing food bits and bacteria and toxins to leak into your bloodstream. And so again, scientific term got co-opted for the wellness and now they're diagnosing this or self-diagnosing it and then selling supplements to cure your leaky gut because it's all due to this inflammation. Got it. So they've kidnapped the word inflammation, created a condition called leaky gut that people have real symptoms for and instead of getting the treatment and diagnosis of what their symptoms For, are yeah, coming from, correct. they're getting this faux diagnosis leading them to missing the proper treatment, right. which is the big problem. Yeah, okay. and, then and, that, and that's the big problem that I have is that, right. you know, they're getting preyed upon yeah. by these people that are making a profit. Well, that's yes. the thing. They're all vilifying pharma and industry because it's for profit, what do you think the wellness industry is? I mean, everything, I'm sorry, are people so naive? Everything is for profit. Like we don't work for free. I I don't understand this concept. (laughs) You know, it's the most frustrating thing in the world and love to talk more about that. But yeah, so then it gets co-opted by the wellness industry. And and my big thing, I guess, related is this natural and the appeal to nature fallacy Mm. and that everything that's natural and clean is automatically better for us. And that anything that's synthetic or made in a lab is just, it's it's bad for us. It's toxic and it's mm-hmm. full of chemicals. And we always say everything is a chemical. And of course, you know, that's not true. And the example we once gave is that, was it willow bark? Yeah, well, has, yeah. What is that thing? Salicylate. Sal- sal- there you which go. Which is now, you know, now we've synthesized it into yeah. aspirin. So people were chewing on willow bark, eating willow bark for pain relief. And yeah, that was great. But they were, you know, pooping their brains out, vomiting. There were all these GI side effects. Mm-hmm. And now we're able to... Um, concentrated in a lab, get rid of all the stuff that was making people violently ill, mm-hmm. and also, spoiler alert, by synthesizing thing in a, things in a lab, we're preserving nature because we don't need to destroy nature. Yeah, you know, yeah. we're able to... So I just don't understand. I feel like we're, as a society, moving towards this idea that everything that's a drug or synthesized or made in a lab manufactured is automatically bad for us. And this wellness industry, multi-billion dollar, you know, booming... Yeah based on this premise. So that's my yeah. And the reality of the wellness 
quote unquote wellness space <laughs> yeah. is the supplements they make are not chemicals. regulated by the FDA. Well, yes, <laughs> yes, yes. But uh, they're synthesized. Specifically, yes. They're synthesized and purified right. in the same ways that- exactly. Yeah, they're made in the lab. No, no, not even in the same ways, in worse <laughs> in ways. Because yes. there's no oversight. No quality control. Exactly, yes. exactly. And that, and, you know, and like, so, you know, like the, the appeal to nature fallacy, I mean, it's everywhere, right? Like I only want all natural ingredients. It's like, well, you know, arsenic is all natural too. Yeah. And botulism toxin is all natural too. And, you know, I mean, and, and you know, Again, those have higher toxicity than a lot of synthetic things. So I have someone in my family, I'm not going to say anything more than that, who okay. was just diagnosed with Graves' disease. Okay. And, um, you know, she, her whole thing is that she does not want to take any medication for it because it's synthetic. And she only wants to go on the, what Big. is it, the AIP, Auto the autoimmune, autoimmune oh. protocol diet. She's going gluten-free. Which we've free, covered on our okay. podcast. She's going uh, gluten-free, dairy-free, and she's only doing homeopathy. I mean, you as a clinician, like I'm sure you deal. I'm sorry, I'm asking you a question. Yeah, but, no, you know, ask me a question. But like, how good. do ask you deal? I'm sure you get a lot of yeah. people who come in and are like, "Oh no, I don't want to treat that with medicine. It's toxic. It's bad for me. I want to treat it naturally." I mean, do yeah. you get that a lot? All the time, in, in, in ways on both sides of that equation. Okay. So I'll have people come in and say, "I don't want the pill for this. I want the natural approach." Mm -hmm. And then on the other end of the spectrum, I have me saying, "You don't need antibiotics for this." And, and they're oh, demanding, you. "Oh yeah, yes." We talk or about I'm that. depressed and I'm like, okay, well, we need to do some therapy, some right. talk therapy. And they're like, no, and they're like oh, I want the pill. Yeah. Right. So it happens on both ends. Right. For sure. I mean, Which we, is why the pendulum, again, I'm trying to yes. bring it back yeah. to the middle. And it's multifactorial yeah. because, you know, it's like I want to tell her, you know, we're not saying that you take a pill for everything. I mean, a medication helps people, you know, all the time. But yes, there are other things, other factors, other lifestyle changes that we, that we could make. It's yes. not like we're saying you take a pill, you take medicine, it'll fix it. And then to your point, you're right. On the other side of it, you know, people, like I know... My, my best friend's a pediatrician and she said like parents come in, they want to leave with a prescription. You yeah. want to feel like you're doing something tangible mm -hmm. to make your child better or yourself feel better. So they'll, you know, they're prescribing medications and antibiotics even when they know this is viral and antibiotic is not going to do anything. Yeah. Another one of my friends, actually it was a, he, he was a med student when I was doing my PhD and we taught clinical microbiology to the second year med students. And um, he's an emergency room physician in Arkansas now. And he was like, I'm guilty of prescribing antibiotics when I know I don't need to because mm -hmm. they come into the ED and they want something to and leave you want with. Go yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the way that I try and position myself in times where a patient might come in and want something natural or have a distrust of the medical system, I try and put myself in their shoes as much as possible and figure out what is the cause of this. Yes. And as a person who's experienced a decent amount of life in my young age of 33, I have still seen what they have seen, which is doctors don't spend enough time. They want to make a quick diagnosis. They want to throw a pill at it because we don't have the time to discuss lifestyle modifications, to debate lifestyle right. modifications, to see if the patient is actually doing this because we don't have enough appointment slots available for follow-ups. So as a result, I get why yep. people believe in the naturopathic cure to everything better than the modern right. system. We talk about this all the time. Yeah. Like, I people, mean, the healthcare industry has a lot of flaws and that's it, a topic exactly. for and, another. And people are suffering. There are chronic issues. There are major problems with our healthcare, healthcare system. And I hate when people come in and are fighting with my husband and blaming him. It's like he, first of all, he's getting chastised from the higher ups in the administration. Move fast, see as many people of as course. possible. He wants to spend more time yeah. talking to his patients. So we get why some people are drawn to yeah. like naturopathy and mm -hmm. chiropractic and, you know, stuff like that. And we just want to educate people like 
okay, we understand why you're drawn to it. There are problems, but the evidence is just not there to support right. it. And if you're foregoing actual, med you know, necessary medical treatment and and you know, care, that's the problem. Right. You want to put onions on your feet? That's fine. You know, if you're sick, yeah. that's fine. But if you're not getting your kid yeah. an antibiotic, if they need it for a bacterial infection, that is a problem. Yeah, uh, this is where my sort of clinician hat gets put on and my scientist hat comes off because guidance general for the population might be, okay, get this patient, uh, you know, thyroid replacement medication, mm -hmm. but patient wants to do this unique diet. The, the, the treatment says only do the pill, not the diet. Uh -huh. But now for this patient, I will try and find some level of middle ground sure. where, okay, maybe we don't have to take the, the, the dose that I was gonna start you on. Let's start on a lower dose, recheck and make some, this is against what the evidence yes. shows. Yes. But I'm doing this well, you want to get trust. You want to get trust. You want to get buy-in. Make my way to right. the time because because presumably you know, or at least have an inkling that the other modifications are not going to be as effective, and so eventually you're going to have to get them up to that dose. Yep. But you have to take baby right. steps because yeah. they're not there. You're exactly. being practical and yes. realistic. You want some adherence, you know, better some medication. Let's start them, you yeah. know, then just having them completely say, okay, this guy, this doctor is not listening to me at all. You know, he's not hearing me. He's not and we want to be heard. E right, exactly. So we totally get that. Andrea, you sometimes though, and I, I love to talk about this, like the slippery slope, like we sort of try to figure out like, yeah. Do you want to talk? Is it okay? We talk about oh, that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> okay. How like, you know, sometimes people will come for us. It's like, well, don't, you can't say blanketly that like, you know, chiropractic is bad and acupuncture is bad and all this and that. And like, it's true. Like there is no evidence, right? So we don't want, we're, we're not condoning it because there really is no evidence to support its use. But then if we say like, don't do it, it's not helpful. Like people yeah, so shut we down try to We try to, you know, approach it from like a risk, like there are some legitimate risks with X, Y, or Z. Right. You know, the data don't support it. Right. We, we've we done a lot on the placebo effect, which, you know, we kind of discussed earlier on right. here that, you know, if people believe that they're getting something that's going to help them feel better and sometimes it can also contribute to that. And a lot of people, you know, they're like, well, I took the supplement and I felt better. And it's like, well, you could have been at the end of your infectious illness to begin with. And so it's just a matter of time. Um, but we're trying to get people to think more critically about those sorts of things. And, you know, the wellness industry plays on this, like, desire to get a quick fix, right? They're like, well, you're going to take well, this, right. that, and the other. The, way, the reason why they're, quote, unquote, winning is because the wellness industry, you're requiring people to think critically at a time where they're exhausted, they're tired, they have a lot of stuff going on, and maybe they don't have the health background to know. Right, right. And then the wellness industry is simplifying and asking them to not think critically <laughs> yes. and saying, here, we've quick already fix. solved this for you. Just take this. And then we expect people to be like, wait, why don't you? agree with us. But you know, right. what's interesting, and I would love your thought on this is that, you know, so you said, you know, you have people, you they come to you, they don't want to take a pill, mm -hmm. but then the wellness industry packages up a pill yeah. of right. herbs or whatever, and are like, take this pill. And they're much more inclined to take that. You know, what's that's what I would explore. Mm. That's what happens in my visits. So just my last guest on the podcast was uh, Angela Johnson Reyes. And she was telling me about how she prefers this naturopathic approach. And it would have been very easy for me in that moment to point out and say why her thing isn't proven to do what it's doing for her. But what do I win by doing that outside of making myself feel good that I'm morally superior or not morally knowledgeable superior, whatever. It gives nothing to the conversation. So instead the conversation changed to 
what happened that she went this route. And she started telling me all those stories of doctors neglecting her, not answering her questions, jumping to medications, giving her an antibiotic when they were like, I don't really know if you need an antibiotic. And now all of a sudden, I can then create some education, not even in the moment of where we disagree, but in general, why my mindset is negative on an industry, higher on this industry, and we can create a level of common ground instead of constantly putting stones in our path. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's a it's a broader issue. Like, we know there are flaws in the healthcare industry. Often scientists get conflated with the healthcare industry, mm -hmm. which we're typically not, you know, directly involved with. And clinicians often get lumped into the category of, I had this one bad clinician mm -hmm. that ignored my complaints. Yeah. They didn't believe when I said my pain was at an eight, yeah. they didn't do this. And then and then that leads to a general mistrust of all healthcare providers, which is a whole other you know issue that needs I to be I don't think addressed. that's unreasonable. Yeah, mm -hmm. I think if you've been in one crap situation and then you're put in that same exact situation, the fact that you're experiencing the same set of feelings that you did on the previous one is almost human. Yeah. And for us as doctors to not believe it or be confused by it is weird. Right. Well, people always have risk aversion and aversion to negative experiences. Like, exactly. like think about like you go to a particular type of food restaurant, you had a really bad meal. Like, you know, the next time you're thinking about a restaurant, like you might not even look at <laughs> exactly. that type of cuisine, not yeah. not even just that restaurant, right? That's because, how the mind works. Yeah. And we've seen that even like in animal mouse studies or, or rat studies. Being someone that has studied medical history to some degree, mostly for the YouTube channel, not because I'm smart again, um, I've seen how science gets really overconfident at times. Yes. And I have to be open to the idea that things change and not just data like improving, but also breakthroughs in yep. mm -hmm. how treatments that we once believed to be really good are not really good yeah. mm -hmm. or something that we believe to be bogus actually got some proof behind it. Yep. So when I hear like the topic of let's say acupuncture come up and I have a patient who's trying to skip surgery because they, we've seen negative outcomes in their specific uh, instance with musculoskeletal surgery. And they said, I've tried physical therapy, I've tried epidural injections, I've tried this. Do you think I could try acupuncture? I think it works. And they try it. I, in this situation as a doctor, have to think about, okay, what is the risk of them trying acupuncture mm -hmm. and not overplay it, the risk? Yeah. Because mm -hmm. it's very easy as a doctor to be like, this is risky for no reason. Right. It's not risky for no reason. Even if you believe acupuncture doesn't work as a doctor, mm -hmm. there's a 30% chance it'll work because of placebo. Right, 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 right. Now you have to think, if they can get a 30% benefit from this that they believe in acupuncture, what is the true risk that they're experiencing? And the risk is quite low. Mm -hmm. So yeah. that's why I say, I think it's worth a try. Well, and, but and would you agree with that? Well, so, you know, we actually did an episode on acupuncture. Okay. Um, and, and I you know, our general conclusion when you look at the evidence is, yes, the risk is pretty low. There are some documented really severe adverse events like pneumothorax because yeah. the you know needles are placed inappropriately. But if you look at kind of like the realm of pseudoscience, I guess we can kind of lump that into that bucket. Um, We're going to get attacked for that. <laughs> no. Sorry. Yeah, I wouldn't put acupuncture <laughs> yeah, maybe in pseudoscience. Not. Or, pseudoscience is made up. Yeah, like, yeah. that's true. Okay. Al so alternative? alternative? Yeah, alternative. alternative. Yeah. Integrative. Yeah. Um, in the bucket of all of those options, the risk of acupuncture is low. And again, there could be a per, you know a, a, a potential benefit per placebo. I think there was a little bit of evidence that for certain conditions, particular yeah. yes, conditions, yes. especially when coupled with other modalities like physical therapy, of it course. actually did have a benefit. And I think if you are an individual and your option is invasive surgery with long recovery and maybe trying this for eight weeks, yeah. you know, 
and the risk is low and you make that personal risk assessment. That's why I don't destroy integrative right. therapies. Right, simply right, right. on what you just said. Mm -hmm. And there are doctors in this space who will say never. Yeah. It's it's quackery, they'll they'll downplay. It. And I understand where they're coming from. But at the same time, I got to think of that practical implication that you just referenced. Yeah. It's so interesting because I feel like we're now kind of labeled as like the bitches of psycho. I mean, like, we like, <laughs> wow, okay. I'm so, you're sorry, unbiased sorry, science, sorry, not sorry, bitches of No, no, I'm not self-labeling. Andrew, I'm telling you, people call us this and that we've just like shoot down anything no, they that's do. alternative. We, we, yes. And, and it, I need people to understand, like, it's because we're coming from the perspective of scientists and there's not a whole lot of evidence for it. And you as a clinician, I understand why you're maybe more open-minded to it and trying to establish a connection with the patient. You don't want them to shut down completely. And, right, you, you need know, them to buy into your recommendations. Context is different. From an evidence point of view, there's not a whole lot right. whole lot of right. evidence for its use. Right. And I worry as like, a population. As a population. Yes. But then what Correct. individually. Exactly. Yes. And we actually we're working on a post about clinicians versus scientists oh, and God. how it's individual versus population. Right. Well, exactly. And people don't like we're describing our goal is to describe the average. And yes, there are outliers. You know, mm -hmm. I, I don't know. It's it's such a different World, like yeah. different world. And I well, think- Well, it's also a different end goal, right? Yeah. Yes. It's a different end goal. Yes. So, so the approach will be different. I don't want us to be seen as like just being anti all these things. It's just that we're, we're trying to educate people on the available evidence. And then, but by the same coin, it's like, are we also eroding then the impact of the potential placebo effect by telling people, no, you know? No, I don't think so. I don't think it's that dramatic. No, because I think, I think, you know, and I- I think I your think, job is to be unbiased and yeah, fair. And yeah, and so most, pe you know, I think most people are like, yeah, we get this. You know, and we always try and balance it with potential risk. So like if the potential risk is low, then, you know, that's fine. But like a lot of times it's like, well, you don't need to waste your money on this supplement because there's no evidence to support its yeah. use. And a lot of it is like, People are spending thousands of dollars on these right. things that are being sold to them on social media. And, and our issue, like we're not judging the people who are taking these things and trying these mm -hmm. therapies or whatever, alternative therapy, you know, because again, I understand like I saw my dad struggle with emphysema and, and, and cancer and like we were thinking like, are there? Like for a time we were thinking like, okay, the treatments aren't working. Like, should we explore these things? Outside like, the I, box, yeah. I understand that mindset of desperation and of chronic pain and fear. I get that. Um, where was I going with this? Um, <laughs> I lost Something my train of thought. about, um, but balancing but, it with evidence? balancing it with evidence. I don't and know. Not judging the people. Oh, and oh, not yes. sorry. Thank you. Yes, we're not, I'm not judging, judging the people. The people. It's, it's about the industry. It's that's the praying. industry. Yes. Thank you. Yes. I'm sorry. Yes. I do this all the time, and she has no. to finish my thoughts. <laughs> so we're not judging the people, but I think oftentimes people come at us like you're being so rude, and you're judging yeah, us, yeah. and you're. No, it's it's the industry and the charlatans and the sneak oil salesmen. That's what frustrates us. Yeah. Like yeah. they know there's no evidence. The way that I like pose it to someone who is a firm believer in supplements and believes that they work for all of these issues is if you walk into a supplement store, there's a supplement to cure aging. There's a supplement to cure um, ugliness. There's a supplement yeah. to cure yes. uh, sex drive. Yes. And yet we're all, all suffering with those things. <laughs> yes. you know, and every person in that store still has all those yes. things. Right. Yes. So yeah. like, that's my thing. I'm like, if it worked, then everyone in the supplement store would be yeah. the strongest, fastest. They would fastest, be gorgeous. Having the best sex. Invincible. Yeah. Invincible yeah. And living forever. No gray yes. hair. Yeah. So like, I, I hope that I can just induce skepticism on that yeah. point alone. It's a great, I mean, it's a great tactic. And, uh, and you know, I mean, we try and, we try and approach it you know, okay, well, this is the evidence, you know, if if this was, you know, like there's a reason that they have to use these buzzwords, right? There's a reason that they have to sell it in this way because 
there isn't the data to support yeah. it. And we're not in front of a patient like you yeah, are. Like it's true. different for us when we're presenting information. Like we don't have that same relationship with people. So I really do understand like what you're saying and I respect it. I think what we're all coming back to the point is that this is a collaborative effort. I'm not gonna try and run scientific rigorous trials because I'm not good at setting up those trials. Mm -hmm. And uh, on your end, making the deduction on which individual level to make these recommendations yeah, no, probably right. doesn't yeah. make sense either. No. Right. So that's, not our that's why we team up to do it in that way. And that's, and that's how it should be. Yeah. And it's, and it's unfortunate, you know, and I think social media certainly has accelerated, but the, the pitting, the pitting of each other against each other. Yeah. Is, I think a good title for this podcast is like doctor versus scientist. Ooh. <laughs> oh gosh. Okay. That way it sounds a little salacious. But yes, it's actually, but it's not actually It's salacious. quite unified. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was going to just share a alert. quick story yeah. of uh, how, okay, uh, for placebo effect to work, you have to believe in it and all these things sure. that we know. I did. I never believed in acupuncture, and I had uh, a torn labrum in my left shoulder. Oh, me too. Really? My right, my right though. Oh, okay, so I, I had left. surgery. Ooh. Okay. <laughs> so here's what I did. I had this issue for three, four years, uh, probably from being a goalkeeper landing on an outstretched arm, or maybe bench pressing incorrectly. And I had it for a long time. It never really went away. There was maybe a day that it wouldn't be so bad, but it would constantly lock and catch. And then my dad took me to his friend who's a pain management doctor who also did some acupuncture. He did one session and I didn't believe in it. I was like, what is this ridiculousness? I didn't have pain for 10 years. Really? And I don't know how to wrap my head around right. that as a physician who I can't understand the pathway of how this worked. And then I had a same instance. I had uh, a medial epicondylitis, uh, ten uh, not tennis elbow, golfer's elbow from boxing. And I went, I'm like, you know what? This has been going on really long. Let me try acupuncture because it worked for my shoulder 10 years ago. I went, first session, 85% relief of symptoms despite physical therapy failing, meloxicam failing, all these things that hmm. I tried. And then this is where it gets tricky. I went for the second acupuncture session for the elbow when I probably shouldn't have. It was already so much better. But the person said, come back for a second session to make it 100%. He hit my nerve. It got worse. And I got, no, and I had ulnar nerve neuropathy that was terrible <gasps> for like six weeks that I had to seek second opinions for. My nerve was lighting up. Oof. So it goes to show. Yeah. Can the work. risks are not. Well, and the risks are there. Right. So I'll tell you my story about my. So I used to be a competitive judo player. Okay. Um, player? And I, yeah. Is that. Fighter, whatever. Fighter? Yeah. Give yourself yeah. The credit. Fighter. I used Fighter. to beat the crap out of people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Don't mess with Andrea. Um, yeah. She's like, I was a player. And, <laughs> and so I tore my labrum. I was going to throw somebody and, you know, my arm was here and their body went that way. And yep. anyway, um, so it was like an acute slap tear. And I didn't want to get surgery because, you know, I knew it was going to yeah. be an impediment. And I did physical therapy and it helped a little bit. And then I postponed it for 10 years probably. And and then it got to the point where my biceps tendon like basically Started suffering completely as a result, frayed. Yeah. And so they had to slap it all together again. Um, but I ended up finally giving in and getting the surgery in grad school. And so mm -hmm. I remember I was in my sling and I was pipetting with, I'm a lefty, so it actually, okay. but I drove stick You're shift and I Ooh. had to trade cars with my dad because I couldn't shift when I was in a sling for a month. But I didn't try acupuncture. I just tried oh. physical therapy and it wasn't enough. Imagine it worked. Did hmm? it work? Imagine it worked. Oh, imagine no, it imagine worked. it worked. You would have saved the surgery. You could have pipetted. I could have pipetted fiction. with both hands. Um, but yeah. But it's interesting. And I also no, had the same thing happen. And 
I'm an, also a, an osteopathic physician, so I'm a DO. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have some extra hands-on stuff, but none of it is magical. It's all based on like right. physical therapy-esque reflexes of the human body. And we see people get better from things that they really shouldn't be getting better from mm-hmm. all the time. I had Oshkod Schlatter growing up where I had this like uh, inflammation below my knee. And that's very common in young folks and adolescents to experience this. And it hurt for like four years. Every time I play basketball, it was a chronic issue, whether it was Oshkod Schlatter or jumper's knee, same thing basically. And I did, I, I saw KT taping was getting hot. And <laughs> oh, KT yeah. taping very like, popular looks in the very community. magical. It <laughs> looks cool, like different colors. It got me excited about it. I was young, I was like 21 at the time. I put on KT tape. I did it the way that they said for the knee. And I wore it for seven days, showered with it, all of it. It never hurt again for the rest of my life. I need an explanation. I didn't believe in it. So I actually, I started taping my shoulder (laughs) after- What happened evidence-based medicine (laughs) scientists? (laughs) Well, it was during the same fanaticism when there wasn't evidence, but um, it was a, it's sticky tape, right? It's sticky, stretchy tape that, you know, and they were like, well, it might, if you tape it tight enough, it might might help hold it in place when you're recovering post-surgery. And it's so popular with the elite runners now. Um, But yeah, there's really, there's not a lot of evidence behind it. There's not a lot of explanation as to why it would help behind it. It cured me, how? I Yeah, see, it didn't cure me. It didn't cure me. He wants an answer. How did it cure me? I don't have an answer. I don't have an answer either. That's, so like, that's that's where. where, Yeah, that's your place. That's my humility of medicine has to be like, okay, like, look, it cured me. And I would be the first person that if a patient brought that in, I'll be like, come on. (laughs) But it cured me and (laughs) it worked. So like, I have to be- What color KT tape did you pick? It was just black. It was basic. (laughs) It wasn't even fancy. Science needs that humility too. And like, we've done posts like science isn't perfect, you know? Yeah. So Because it's sexy to say, trust the science. I know, I know. We used to use that hashtag, trust the science. It's also sexy for like a wellness influencer to say like, all food is toxic and yes. poisoning. Well, we were just well everything about, is toxic depending yeah. well, on the dose. At the dose. At the dose. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, there's a post that we're going to be debunking yeah. soon and it's like, you know. Sub the, in for all your organic counterparts yeah, because they're non-GMO. It, when right. Well, and no, so they GMOs show all these things and a bit, the takeaway is eat organic because this thing has GMO, da da da. This it's has like, red dye. So, so what? None Why? of those things are- Detrimental. Yeah. Why are we vilifying these things? You know. So, but anyway, w- the, again, I don't even know why I said that. I keep losing my train of thought. <laughs> don't vilify. The don't vilify. It. It. But no, that, no, yeah. there was another humility. Point. Uh, humility. Humility. Science isn't perfect. I don't know. Anyway, and science is sexy. Or science is science. Science. Oh, because it's sexy to see those things yes. and to oh, yeah. you know it, it seems to create uproar. Wow. Right. And this person has a million followers on you know Instagram. It's getting reshared, reshared, and then we have a very boring post about how GMOs are not inherently bad and how dyes are not you know and. <laughs> That doesn't get shared a million times. No. It just doesn't because yeah. her post is sexier. So we have to figure out how to make science sexy. Well, I have, maybe this is not the solution for you, but this was my solution <laughs> for society that I could come up with. Um, I have been able to get a pretty big social media following with never straying from evidence-based recommendations on the channel, which is almost unheard of because most people who are medical influencers mm-hmm. who have millions of followers right. are usually sharing some kind of BS. Right. They're hawking a product or yes, something. Yes, exactly. They're doing that. In, that's like the Dr. Oz thing that constantly comes Don't. up. Don't time. even get me started. I live in Pennsylvania. <laughs> <laughs> He's not even from there. Struggle. <laughs> and I've also, to be fair, when I was a resident, he invited me on his show and I went on to talk about a program I piloted, uh, piloted in my hospital with Dr doctors working out their patients. So at least like he gave the evidence-based doctors a chance sometimes. So I'll just say that. Once upon a time, he was not And a he was a great cardiothoracic right. surgeon. Right. He, he trained in my hospital and there's 
countless physicians that said he did amazing surgery. So mm-hmm. something happened. Right. Yes. Yeah. Something yeah. happened. Something yes. changed. Evidence changed. And we learned. Or, or, or the greed. The the no, 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 no. <laughs> our evidence of what he yes, was yes, doing. Yes, yes, yes. That's oh, why okay. our judgment yes. has changed. <laughs> we both were like, on you. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I decided to create a course uh, for professionals, whether you're medicine, a lawyer, a bookkeeper, and you want to put out evidence-based good info, and you don't know how to do it through media or social media, I kind of created a playbook of how you can do it and be successful. That's, that's my thing. Because otherwise, what I see young doctors doing is either selling out to the bunk and selling the nonsense miracle cure stuff, or they go into this, I'm going to do call-out culture right. and join TikToksic and yell Ooh, at these people. Sorry. Yeah, no, I hate. So, I mean, I'm so I not, feel like don't do that. There's a middle no, ground. We don't, yeah, we you don't can be successful. Do, we don't want to do, do financially any of that. well right. off. Yeah. You can do all. We this get stuff. offers all the time, and yeah. this is what I p- wish people understood. Like, oh, you could make so and so amount of money if you push this product. And we're, we're like, like no, no, we're not. We're you know, not we're not going to do that. Yeah. But if the product we, was good and evidence based, we would do good. We would. And there's nothing wrong with that. Well, the public thinks there's something wrong with it. I know there's. We know there's nothing wrong with it. And we've all like the we have to make a living. Things that we've been, you know, that we've partnered with companies. I have to Uh-oh. make a, a pause again. I think scientific minds are corrupting you right now. Uh-oh. Do you really think all of your audience is upset when you make money? No. Not it's, all it's, of them. It's the How many of them? Percentage wise. I, I think it's a very small percentage. Exactly. So One why are you thing, upset by it? I'm okay. I get upset by it. Jess why? gets upset. I'm a people pleaser. I don't know what's she wrong with me. And I tell her, and you I know tell what her it is to stay off comments because I know how pure our intentions are, and like it I'm, hurts her. It hurts it, her as no, a person. No, it really it does. does. It offends me because we could be making the quick cash, yeah. and like I'm going to be real with you, Pfizer and Moderna, they have foundations. We talk all the time about vaccines. We have not taken a penny from Pfizer yeah. and Moderna, but like it's like if they have foundations and we could apply for a grant where we are getting funding to do the psychom that we're now doing for free why should we say no to that and i don't like i that's my struggle you know and the thing is is the the critics are going to be the ones that are going to dogpile and comment and you know it's going to be a very small proportion and i try the louder yes they're they're very yeah they're loud and and they're the minority because we're humans and we have a negativity bias so i try to tell her turn off notifications don't read the comments we don't eat we don't sleep we don't shower we both have full-time jobs i sometimes and whatever Ice cream no, yeah, but my point is like I just <laughs> my knowing, doctor mind turned on. Really. <laughs> <laughs> knowing what goes into what we do, I, it just it hits a nerve of in course, me, and I no. don't know. How, I have to stop myself from doing that. And also, yeah. she has would to be, stop reading the comments. Is what she has to. But stop also, doing. we should be compensated should. for our time and expertise. And so I think <sighs> this is the reassurance I'll give you because I, I am same position as you are. Okay. I get very upset when I read the comments. Sam frequently tells me never read the comments. Mike, stop reading the comments. Smart man. There was a period of time where I needed to literally go to therapy. And part of the advice of the therapy was to at night not read comments. And my my critique of that advice was initially that that's avoidance behavior. We shouldn't practice avoidance behavior. And she taught me Mm -hmm. that avoidance behavior done recklessly could be problematic. But if it's targeted at something that you see as a problem for you, it might be a good behavior and a good coping mechanism. I've actually taken the practice of not trying to get off social media like after 8 p.m. Like my job, I often work long hours. And so I will be online officially, you know, in the evenings. But I've started especially recently just staying off and sometimes just will like screenshot a comment or a message and often i just don't even <laughs> acknowledge them anymore because it does it it adds to my anxiety and 
I have to disconnect. Otherwise, like I don't sleep. I already of take trazodone yeah. to sleep. Yeah. Right. And I have to shut that part of my brain off. You don't know how many times we've considered like just shutting down the page. Like it's like this is don't. just. Uh, Please don't. You know what it is? We it's, need you. it's tough because. Us simple <laughs> clinicians need the smart our scientists. name is not helping us though. Like, and I love our name. I had a really clever name when we first. What? Let, so, well, I wanted to do what like a it? play on like, you know, show me the data. Or, like there was like some other. Remember like I once. I thought I came up with show me the data. I don't remember. Oh. But there was, there was a bunch of ones that we were. Judo match. That yeah. we were I would throwing lose. around. <laughs> Very much lose. <laughs> but, but, you know, we had to also factor in the, the fact that it was her data analytics firm that was kind of, you know, bankrolling the podcast yeah. in the first place. And, you know, there were other people involved in some of the decision making. And so we couldn't be as witty or, you know, well, we and also to. trying to find it like we are in two very different scientific fields. So trying to like find a common yeah, like ground. I wanted to do some like like you had she had some things. Some, I, was like, I had I some what the fun. Fuck you're talking some about. Names. Yeah, I don't even I don't know. Like whatever. Anyway, you hear <laughs> she talks. She's a very high, very technical. That's why we're a good team. I'm yeah. more big picture. Um, so what do you think? Can I, uh, this is a really, I'm curious for your input. We're unbiased science. Um, and uh, all the time we hear more like bias science. I mean, you don't even know. What if Moderna and Pfizer, their foundations funded us not to, you know, talk, oh, get the Pfizer bivalent. We would never do something like, we just wouldn't do that. But to help fund our education efforts, should we take it or would that be like psychom suicide? I don't want to put you, I'm sorry, I think I'm putting you on the spot. for you, it might hurt, but in general, no. Okay. Meaning for you, knowing your personality as you've shown it today. Oh, me personally. Yes. Okay. It might be hard for you to function in that space now. Okay. But what about, what like, about like for individual? Me, so, no, no. So, individual, <laughs> general advice, no, it's not suicide. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Individual advice, it might not be great. Okay. That's my clinician. Okay. Because I feel like we would be very transparent. Like I any, would be fine with it. Anytime, <laughs> anytime we do a sponsor, like a sponsorship, you're very clear. You're yeah. It's yeah. always like she sometimes is over. I know. I think I see. It. Like we just did. Can I just? I know. I no, don't do want to talk do too it. long, but like we just did a podcast on infant feeding. We brought on two pediatricians. We all happen to be scientific adv advisors except for, for except for Andrea for for Bobby for but we're Bobby Labs, which is the scientific arm of this formula company. Mm -hmm. They didn't even pay us to do the podcast. There was no payment. They gave, there was no script. It was just I felt it was important to disclose that we do have this advisory relationship with Bobby because I had you know people look us up and they're like oh look formula shill you know there's a relationship. So I maybe no one's over disclose. Yeah, there are people. five people. Yeah, okay, five, five people. Five people. Right. Who are you educating? Who are you educating? Okay, right. so maybe I'm over disclosing. Okay, this is no. You're not like, over disclosing. Good. Do this when a when a scientist I mean, at a presentation. Disclosures is fine. Yeah, yeah you, you went always to do so have to many disclose. of these but, things. But I don't think you have to go and explain it away. You don't in have the to stories. fall on the knife. Yeah, you don't okay. have to. You it, don't have to follow it up with like, okay, we didn't take a penny. We didn't do like, like just say it. Short of like giving a like a copy of the agreement to the public. Like I've thought about that. Like literally, no one is giving us a script. We are in control of everything we're saying. We weren't. We didn't even. If you were shady. The yeah. audience would know. Yeah. Okay. And when I say the audience, and that's also, the majority of the audience. Right. And you have to remember like how many followers there are versus how many are the people comments, that are actually yeah. dogpiling like in the comments. It's, it's, no, it's Thank very you, hard. It's yeah. very hard because I struggle with the same thing. That's why I can speak to it this right. much. But um, I, I even just did a campaign right now with like the COVID-19 vaccine project 
where they reached out to us to do sponsored posts for the vaccine. I'm like, I don't wanna take money for the vaccine, not because I'm high and mighty, just because I don't even wanna create that relationship for people. Mm. So I said, I'll do it. You could use my image, I'll post about it, but use the money to buy space mm -hmm. in, in newspapers or billboards or whatever it is to put the message out there. Mm -hmm. Got so it. like, you don't have to fall on the knife every right. time. Well, you just you have know, to be forthcoming. And once you are, and, we and you're are. an open book, yeah, yeah. Yeah. people will see it. It's like when you step into a room with someone and you spend an hour with them, how soon do you know they're full of shit? Immediately. Immediately. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's what right. your audience is doing. So you don't have to right. worry. And, and, and if you are, make a mistake, it's okay. Right. And there are people that follow just to be a troll. And exactly. those are gonna be the ones, you know? So, yeah. so you don't have to engage with them because that's just giving them well, energy. Like, tonight we're doing a partnership with, it might be the group you were talking yeah, about. Yeah, the, the COVID, COVID vaccine equity. equity project. Oh yes, that's the project. Yeah, so, yeah. So, so so the AAFP board chair, Sterling yeah. Ranson, he's mm -hmm. gonna come on and chat okay. with so us. So they get funding from they the, get funded yeah, from right, yeah. Novartis. We and, but, were in fun. Yeah. but again, like no one told us what to say. We're just educating the public. It's just, and we're just having a discussion but with, of course, you people know, focused family. on that. And we had it's some not people. No, okay. it was person. It no, was no. actually one person. From now it on, was one when person. I say people, yes. this is an easy okay. trick and something I started okay. doing. Say minority. Minority. Yeah, okay. Just say and minority focus on And also, same with like when you're like, oh, the comments are coming in hot. Like it's three people. Okay. You know? Okay. Okay, people. The only time where I actually get upset with the minority is the situation of when how we met yeah. when it's your peers. And that's when yeah. I get really But it's upset. not your peers. Well, that it's was like randos. the post on Ozempic or whatever. No, because those weren't okay. our peers either. Mm -hmm. Some pharmacist and MDB. Okay, well, there was, you know who, but okay. <laughs> We're not gonna talk about her. <laughs> but <laughs> yes, so as you can tell, it's a very complicated space to exist in. Yes, so yes. I'm glad we share, um, all these trials and tribulations, <laughs> even though we're on opposite ends of this collaborative spectrum yes. of clinicians and But scientists. it's collaborative, yeah. so, you know. Exactly. More, it, more could of be this. A cir it could be a circle. Yes, more okay. of this. You know, if you have a line and we're you bend it, it's a circle. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yes. This is a triple Venn diagram. Yes. If I was having an aerial view, we'd be there you go. more oh, overlap like than that. Yeah. Yep. Love well, that. thank you for coming on. Thank you so much for Keep having Keep up the us. good work. Don't stop. You're not allowed to. <laughs> okay. If you, if there's a point where you want to stop, you DM me and say, we want to stop. No, I can't. And I'll fight you. Okay. I can't. I just accept. She has this. a torn labrum. I know her weakness no, on no, the right side. No, no, it's healed now. I had surgery. It's, <laughs> no, I'll break it. <laughs> it's still crackly a little bit. Where can people go to learn more about you? You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn at Unbiased SciPod. Um, our website is www.unbiasedscipod.com. And we have a Substack where you can subscribe. Um, it gives you access to our monthly live Q&As and our private Facebook group. And that is theunbiasedscipod.substack.com. We have show notes for everything. Everything we say is evidence-based. We give the links to the primary sources that we use. We also have, um, I said show notes, but we have a database, a searchable database that you'll see on our website where you could actually search by keyword um, if you have a question about a particular topic. I love it. Yes. All right, wow. That was an intelligent conversation with two intelligent guests. I felt almost out of my comfort zone because they knew so much. Um, but I think that there's a lot of value in us collaborating because while they have a lot of data knowledge, I think that individual uh, experience that clinicians have with patients can really work hand in hand in that collaborative process. And I think they agreed. So. I think it benefited all of us to be a part of that convo. Hope you enjoyed that. But let's get to your questions. Because remember, if you leave a review and you give us five stars, we really appreciate it. And in that body of the review, you can leave your question. So let's answer some of them. Courtney, my question is, what is your take on goalie gummies, apple cider vinegar for weight loss? 
I know you're not too fond of supplements, but I'm just curious. Um, I think anytime we're saying a gummy can cause weight loss, we need to take a pause and understand that scientifically speaking, unless there's some kind of really well-proven method for the medicine that's within that gummy to work, it's a lie. And I don't know about these specific gummies, but I know that just consuming apple cider vinegar will not cause you to lose weight. There are specific things that we can do to lose weight. And then it's not just about losing weight, it's losing weight in a healthy way, changing your entire lifestyle in order to be more healthy. And then also, how long do you keep that weight off? Because there are certain ways to lose a drastic amount of weight quite quickly, but then yo-yo back to that high weight again, and that's not healthy. So yeah, I'm not fond of uh, supplements making this type of claim. Uh, Dazzling Zobear, I got my flu shot a few weeks ago, but still got sick. Can you explain why? Well, I can't explain why you got sick because I don't know even what illness you, you got, but know that when you get the flu shot, A, it takes a few weeks for the flu shot to kick in in your body to build up immunity to the strain of the flu vaccine that you're building up immunity to. So not only can you get sick in that interval while you're building up immunity, but also the flu shot isn't perfect. It doesn't prevent you from getting 100% of all flu cases. What it is really good for is even if you get the flu, you likely have a lower severity of flu, meaning you don't get hospitalized as often, less chance that you end up in the ICU and less chance of death, especially those who are immunocompromised or perhaps older or really young. That's potentially what could have happened. But again, it depends on what happened. You could also get another virus that feels like the flu, uh, but is not the flu. Another scenario that commonly happens in my office. Okay, ADA. What, what's the healthiest and safest time to ride a bike per day? I guess things that I would factor, because I don't think there's a healthiest and safest. I think that's going to depend person to person. But I think things that I would take into consideration is traffic patterns of cars, sun exposure. So like maybe going out in the heat of the day, might not be ideal for skin health because you could be exposed to a lot of sunlight. Obviously, you can wear sunblock to mitigate that risk. Also, going out during a time where there's a lot of congestion on the road, that can influence the amount of pollution that you're exposed to. There's a lot of cars during a certain time. It could be dangerous. If you live in not the safest area, going out at night could be criminally dangerous to go out. Those are the things I would think about. But Getting yourself moving is a good idea in general, so I would still recommend you ride your bike. Just do it safely and wear a helmet. All right, keep those good questions coming and five-star reviews if you truly enjoy the podcast only. And as always, thank you for tuning in to The Checkup. Stay happy and healthy.